morning. I want to I open today the way that Tom has each week. Uh, we are in day 22 of our 117 days of prayer congregational initiative. And so I want to open this morning reading the words of Psalm 117. It should be on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read along with me as a community. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol Him, all you peoples. For great is His love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Last week we ended up in, in our study in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. We ended up at verse 22. And today I want to pick up in 23 and those of you in this, in this service know me pretty well. You've experienced me. And so I'm going to just tell you right up front, this is not going to be a normal James teaching. It's going to be kind of different. You guys know me. I, I'm the kind who likes to go, okay, let's, let's open the text and let's read. Okay, we're two verbs, two words in. Let's hang out, right? Let's, let's just tear these words down and understand what's there. Well, I am going to do something today that I'm going to tell you is absolutely terrifying for me. I am going to step back, and instead of camping out on a couple of words, I'm going to do an overview or a, a preview, if you will, of the Sermon on the Mount. Couching that in, those of you who know me, what, what is the one word that you would associate with me when it comes to teaching? Context. Context, 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 context is critical. If you know me, context is my soapbox. So I'm going to be on my soapbox today, but we're not going to camp out on a couple of words. We're going, to, we're going to take a broader view of the Sermon on the Mount. And then in the coming weeks and months, we're going to do something that hasn't happened in this congregation in a long, long time. We are congregationally going to camp out in three chapters of the book of Matthew for like two and a half months. That's up my alley, okay? So today is going to be really weird, so I, I ask for grace because I'm going to do something that's totally uncomfortable to me. I'm going to try and give you a broad picture and I'm going to paint context in a light that I would guess most of you have never experienced the Sermon on the Mount before. I hope that what I bring today is, I'm not asking you to take my word for it. By, by all means, do not take my word for it. Go to the text. But my desire is to present to you a, a context picture of the Sermon on the Mount that drives you to the text. My desire is not for you to take Tom's word or Chris's word or PD's word or mine or Timmy or Jimmy, whoever stands up here, receive that word, but be like the Bereans. Go back to the text and find out for yourself. We live in a day and an age of unprecedented access to tools, right? The web is full of horrible stuff, but the web is also full of incredibly powerful tools that you and I carry in our pocket everywhere we go. So this morning I want to take and I want to start in... Chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, I'm going to read it, and then I'm just going to say a little bit about it to draw out the course of action, and then we're going to begin to look at, I think, a really unique 
context picture for the Sermon on the Mount. Starting in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Hold on to that. And healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I think we can easily say people followed him from everywhere. Right? So I said, hold on to this concept of kingdom. Our, our sermon series for Matthew is kingdom life. And truly, Matthew is about kingdom living, but we are about to step foot into the high ground of the gospel of Matthew. We are about to, to begin to dig into maybe the holy of holies, certainly one of the most prominent bodies of, of text recorded from Jesus' public ministry. The Sermon on the Mount is, is enormous. The weight of what it talks about is incredible. But I think what I'm going to begin to present to you today, and over the course of the coming months, the teaching team will, will continue to unearth these nuggets that I'm going to begin to share with you today. And I believe, I think you're going to see something, a, a perspective that you probably never heard in a normal church setting. So that's really, that's really me. That's not abnormal. I'm, I'm pretty good at going kind of weird. But Jesus in, in this passage begins to be noticed by the people, right? They, they notice the miracles. They notice the healings. But they notice him teaching about the kingdom. What is this kingdom? Well, as we, as we begin to dig over the coming weeks, we're, gonna, we're going to establish what the kingdom is. But it's not just what. In order to understand what the kingdom is, we have to understand when the kingdom is, where the kingdom is, and who the kingdom is. Yeah. Who the kingdom is. So, I don't know if this struck you, but in the passage, it said that Jesus went throughout all of the Galilee. Okay, we know Jesus was the, the Messiah, the awaited Messiah, right? We, we, we accept that. Where would the Messiah go? I would think Jerusalem, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. Or, okay, let, let's take the temple out of the equation. The Messiah is the son of David. The one who is heir to the throne of Israel. Well, where's the throne? Okay, Jerusalem. I expect when I read the text that Jesus would go to the Galilee? No. That seems weird to me, right? So let me ask you a question. Why would he go to the Galilee? What's going on in the Galilee? John the Baptist has been arrested. And Jesus has relocated from Nazareth to what scholars refer to as the Orthodox Triangle. And we'll talk about that momentarily. But why would he go to the Galilee? 
What was going on there? What made the Galilee the place that he chose to do his public ministry by and large? Well, in order to understand that, guess what we need? Say it, somebody. Context. So the context comes from the historical narrative. The people of Judah are taken into captivity by Babylon, right? And unlike the previous time they were in captivity, when they went to Egypt, they went in as welcome guests, and they were provided an area to dwell together in the land of Goshen, the best of the land. That's not how the Babylonian captivity went. They were taken and they were dispersed, right? So we had these little clusters of families throughout the Babylonian Empire. There's no temple worship. There's no real corporate experience. Babylon doesn't want them worshiping, right? You're going to worship our gods. So what begins to happen is there's this, this subculture, this, this group of lay leadership, if you will, not the priesthood, right? The priesthood is really not in a position to lead spiritually. Take the corruption out of it, okay? We'll deal with that in, in the future. But they're just not physically in a place to lead. All of their leadership is tied to the temple. So this, this group, this, this subculture begins to form throughout the realm of Babylon. And leaders rise up from just normal people like you and me. These men who are committed to God's Word. Tom talked about last week the the levels of schooling in the Israeli culture, right? We have the very basic where the youngest go, and then the best of the best move on to the, to the next level, that intermediate level. And then from that, only the cream of the crop moves on to the next level. And from there, almost none, almost none get to hear the words, lechacharai. Those words, Tom said last night, not, not last night, last week, not those words, but hearing those words was the greatest honor to any family that was not of the priesthood. See, the priesthood was a birthright born into their service. But to hear the words lech acharai was a rabbi to say, come, follow me. The greatest honor that could be stowed upon a child, a, a male child, in that culture. So Jesus goes to the Galilee. Well, when, when the people of Israel are released by Babylon to return to the land, they all ran back, right? Yeah, no. The vast majority of them were happy where they were in Babylon. They were comfortable, they were complacent, and they stayed. And that's a sermon, that's a, that's a lesson for a whole other set of months. But the few that come back to the land, the remnant that comes back to the land, the priesthood probably goes back to Jerusalem, or to Judah anyway, to that area. But these lay leaders, right, they're not part of the priesthood, so they're not really welcome in Jerusalem, right? They'll go there, but that's not their power base. They settle in the north. And I told you about this thing called the, the Orthodox Triangle. Anybody familiar with the Orthodox Triangle? So if you look at the Sea of Galilee, right, 
the north shore of the Sea of Galilee to the north, center northwest is a town called Capernaum, 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 right? We know Capernaum. And just a little north of that and to the east is another little village called Chorazin. And then on the northeast shore, right, coming off over near the Decapolis, heading that way, the land beyond the Jordan, the, the pagan land, is a town by the name of Bethsaida. And those three towns define what we are in scholarship calls the Orthodox Triangle. And these lay leaders that come out of the Babylonian captivity that rise up and begin to teach their belief system, their text, their scriptures, their, their way of life, their way of interpreting the law, how they live out kingdom life, we know them as rabbis. That begins in Babylon. And those, most of them, when they come back, settle in the north, in the region of the Galilee. And the primary houses, if you've done any studying in rabbinic literature, you've heard the names Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, the two great houses of rabbinic Judaism. Right? So there's tons of other rabbinic schools, but all of them fall primarily within one of these two houses and then their own interpretations beyond that that kind of scattered them a little bit more. Their schools, their Beit HaMikdash is in the Orthodox Triangle. That's where the knowledge base, the lay leadership, the scholarship of the day is centered, right? So you have the priesthood in Jerusalem, and the lay leadership, the orthodoxy, up in the Galilee. So why would Jesus go there? Well, because it was commonplace for the rabbis to come into the synagogue courts or into the, uh, the, the village center and have open public discussions and debates. That was part of the schooling process. So just because I'm no longer in school, I could still go and learn from my rabbis without going to Saturday school, right? I can still go to Saturday school, but I can go and I can listen to these debates, these discussions, these narratives. And so Jesus enters the culture where it culturally fits. He goes to the schools where the rabbis are taking Talmudim and teaching them to eventually be rabbis and take Talmudim of their own. So let's go on and, and begin to look at our preview of the Sermon on the Mount. We, we're going to come to chapter 5, and as I said, we're going to hang out on 5 through 7 for a couple months, at least two, maybe a little bit longer, and we're going to look at this. But for the sake of today, let me just say, the Sermon on the Mount is without question one of the most prominent teachings of our rabbi, right? It's one of the largest bodies of text regarding to his interpretation of the Mosaic Law. As we, as we read through the Beatitudes, we can kind of look and from the back of our mind, we can kind of see hints at the Ten Commandments. And as we, as we look at the you have heard it said passages, we can 
We can see Jesus presenting his interpretation. Okay, maybe not his interpretation. He's presenting the Father's original intent. Right? And let me just kind of skip forward ahead because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this incredible verse. And it says, the people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke as one with authority. Whose authority? I, I think the rabbis and the teachers had authority or people wouldn't have been following them. It wouldn't have been an honor to send your kids to study under them. He spoke as one with the authority of the author. So that, that powerful view needs to set the stage for how we come into the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to, I'm going to present to you today, like I said, it's going to be odd. You probably have never heard it, and that's fine. And I'm not asking you to trust me, but, but listen to it and, and pray about it and let the Spirit talk to you. But there is a, a debate in scholarship, a, a discussion, a very heated discussion in scholarship. There are three points of view as to the original language that the Gospel of Matthew was pinned in. Okay? So there are those who, who take the... It was pinned originally in Greek. Okay, we get that. We have the Greek text. Then there are those who take the point or the view that it was pinned in Aramaic because that was the more common language in the region for a long time. And without getting into that a whole lot, that argument quickly kind of loses its footing. But then there's this other group that's just really whack. And they think, they espouse, that the Gospel of Matthew was originally penned in Hebrew. So what? Well, I'll tell you what. It doesn't matter. Because what does matter is, I believe, and again, my opinion, do with it what you will, I believe that it may not have been pinned originally in Hebrew, but it doesn't matter. Because as you begin to look at the text, any Greek scholars in the room? Okay. Me either. But as you begin to look at the text, and you read the Greek, we, we can read what the words mean, right? Okay, this means this, and this means this. But the sentence doesn't make sense in the Greek. It's not only bad Greek, it's un-Greek. I know that's not good English, but it's not, I mean, the words are Greek, but it's not Greek. There is a disconnect to the thought process. A bunch of you, as I look out over the room, a bunch of you were, were in this room years ago when I, when I had my first opportunity to stand up here and teach publicly. And I presented to you a sermon, or a lesson, that I called, Who Are You? And why are you here? What are you doing here? And if you remember, that, that study revolved around the core belief that we needed to understand not just the Western way of thinking that we're used to, but to understand the text more clearly, we had to, we had to begin to understand the Eastern way of thinking to put the text in what's my word? In context. So Jesus goes to the north. He goes to the Galilee. And he goes to where the scholars of his day are. And the scholars of his day, they were really cool because you know how they talked to each other? 
They used like word games, right? So, Tom, I want to ask you about this passage of Scripture, and I'm going to do that by talking about one like four chapters ahead of that, or three chapters behind that, or some combination thereof, right? I'm going to get to the heart of my question because you as a scholar should be so familiar with the text that you know where I'm leading you by talking around the text, right? So they played word games with each other, not to, not to trip each other up so much, but as, to, as iron sharpens iron. They used it to sharpen each other, to hone their beliefs and their presentation of, of their interpretation. They also did something else really cool, and this is where we're going to go today. They would use Hebraic idioms, idiomatic expressions. You guys know what an idiom is? So a word has a defined, a definition. It has a set meaning, right? And we know that the Hebrew and the Greek can have multiple meanings to a word. It can mean this or this or this or all of this. But then they can also have an idiomatic meaning. Why am I going here? Well, because I believe that whether it was pinned in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, whatever, I believe that the thought process of the Sermon on the Mount is a Hebraic Eastern thought process. And so when you take the Greek, and we can do this by using the Septuagint, right? We have this incredible body of text translating the Hebrew Scriptures from the Old into the Greek of their current time. So we can use that as a reference to go back and use what words are used for what, right? So with that and, and some other basic tools, we can search this out. And I, I'll tell you, when you do that, if you do it long enough, you begin to realize that the word order is not only not correct for the Greek, neither is the thought process. Let me give you an example. So let's bypass for the moment the Beatitudes and the discussion on salt and light. And let me shock you and say, let's land on abolish and fulfill. Okay? Because you're really surprised that would be where I would pick to go, right? But I don't want to talk to you about abolish and fulfill from the, from the context of, is Jesus saying that the Mosaic law is done away with? I want to talk to you about abolish and fulfill from the Hebraic idiom that is tied up within that pairing. So, I'm a teacher, and I am teaching in this public forum, and there's these other rabbis with their disciples, and they're listening. And they're listening to my interpretation of the text. And I give that interpretation, and Rabbi uh, Chris over here says, well, not only do I not agree with that, but Rabbi Chris sees something that maybe I didn't, that I didn't see. I, I didn't think this all the way through. And so he sees that if my followers or anybody follows my interpretation on this particular piece of text, that down the road they are going to wind up breaking the law and being in sin. What might Rabbi Chris say to me in this, in this forum? Rabbi Parrish, you have abolished the law. Very common. Read through the rabbinic writings, it happens over and over and over and over. Now, is Rabbi Chris saying to me that I have gone to the law and I have blotted it out and say it's, it's not there, don't follow it? No. I mean, he may be, but the reality is I'm teaching my disciples 
how to keep it. But I have missed something. And so he's saying that my interpretation will, even though it's not my intention, cause whoever follows that to stumble and be in sin, to break the law. So I have, in effect, abolished the law. Now, the other side of that is to fulfill. So now, Rabbi Chris is teaching on his interpretation of another piece of Scripture. And I may not exactly agree with everything that he says about it, but Rabbi Chris's interpretation is right on. If, if followers do what he says, they will be within the law. They will not be in sin. They will not violate the law. I would say in this public forum, Rabbi Chris, you have fulfilled the law. Now, does anybody in here take that for me to say that Rabbi Chris is the fulfillment, the completion, the end of the law? I don't think so, right? I don't think that, that, that intention is brought over in the Greek text. The only way you know that is if you begin to put the text back into a Hebraic concept, into a construct, and follow the Eastern word patterns, and then you see, you see the idiomatic expressions, which are incredibly common in the rabbinic writings. Let's move forward. I'm going to have on the screen a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm going to read it to us. And I could tell you that I could take this and I could nitpick some of the wording, right? Because there's, there's some things I think could be said a little bit different, but it's not the point. I think this quote is incredibly powerful for our study. Let me read this. Humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. Anybody have any doubts we could do that? Have you read the Bible? Have you listened to any teachers? Have you picked up a commentary? Maybe you've heard the old, uh, the old rabbinic saying, for every rabbi you have three opinions. Okay? I don't think we would argue that there's a thousand plus ways to interpret the Scripture. Let's continue. And I love this. This to me is the powerful part of this. Jesus knows only one possibility. Simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it. Not applying it. But doing and obeying it. Is that not powerful? So I believe that the Sermon on the Mount, I believe wholeheartedly that the Sermon on the Mount is our rabbi, his instruction book, his playbook, his manual, if you will, right? His Cliff Notes version of how to live out the calling on our lives once we have accepted it, right? He has taken those of us that he has bought and redeemed, and he's given us a title. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, and it'll be on the screen. Can I get the 2 Corinthians passage? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What's an ambassador? Okay, an ambassador is typically the senior most government official for a nation living on foreign soil, representing the interests and the concerns and the wants and the needs of the country they are from, the home country. Okay? We are Christ's ambassadors. That's a pretty important position. That's not a sit back and take it easy. There's some authority there. We have the authority of the king to represent his interest, to look out for his people, to conduct his business. I said back at the beginning, in order to understand the context of this kingdom thing, we had to be able to not only say what it is, but in order to define what it is, we had to know when, where, and who. So, if you are in a foreign country and you find yourself in some kind of real trouble, right? You ran out of gas or whatever, but you lost your passport. Where do you go? Consulate, the embassy, right? Where the ambassador is. And their job is to look after and help you resolve that issue to get you back home to the home country. Now, let's take this a step further. If you go to the consulate or the embassy... Does that plot of ground, do we identify that in our world as being belonging to the host nation or the occupying nation? The occupying nation. It is sovereign soil. Let's put it together. You and I are Christ's ambassadors. We are his, his chosen emissary. We are his personal representative. Living on foreign soil, the earth. If we are believers, heaven is our home, not earth. We are his emissary living on foreign soil. And where do we reside? In the embassy. So everywhere you and I are belongs to God. It's sovereign soil. Do you see where I'm going with this? Are you beginning to see the direction I'm going? You see, Chris, are you a believer? You are. Realize that where you're sitting is the kingdom of heaven? That's pretty incredible. Todd, do you realize that you, where you're sitting is the kingdom of heaven? Do you understand the power that everywhere you and I go is the kingdom of heaven here, now? So the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom of heaven is Who? You and me. We are the personal representatives of the king of the universe. He makes his pleading with creation through you and me. Everywhere that you and I go is sovereign soil. And I'm going to say this in really bad English. Where is the kingdom of heaven? Anywhere the king is kinging. If the king is reigning the king is kinging, then that is the kingdom of heaven. Now, yes, the kingdom is future and coming as well, and we can wrap our minds around that in a, in a later study, but for the sake of 
where we're headed here, we need to know the context that the kingdom of heaven is then and there and them and here and now and us. It is present tense active. That should define how we look at the text of the Sermon on the Mount. Going forward, we'll dig deeper into that, and I pray that this context becomes the lens at which you look at the text that we present. The teaching team is committed to going through and digging out the treasures that are in this to reveal them for us and to study them so that we can apply them and interpret them. But I'll tell you what, the king has already clearly interpreted the message. And that clarity can be revealed by understanding the context in which the message was given. We're going to spend time going through the Beatitudes and, and the salt and light passages and, and yes, abolish and fulfill and, and the you have heard it said. We're going to look at those things and we are committed to to taking and looking and digging out these Hebraic idioms that I think are going to bring such an incredibly rich experience to this congregation. And I would venture to say most of you have probably never heard that from the Hebraic perspective. And I think that it will bring a level of clarity and a level of, of understanding and open up the text to us in a way that we've never experienced it before. But in order for that to be the case, you can't take my word for it. You have to get into the text. My encouragement would be each week, we're going to be here for a couple of months. Each week, read the three chapters. It doesn't take that long. Read the three chapters. And then when you come, whoever from the teaching team is up here, opening the text and, and digging into it for us and, and teaching, you will be prepared to receive what the king has to tell you. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled, we are honored to not just be servants, but to be called into a life of service, to be given not just a place at the table, but a place of authority, to be able to speak to the culture with your authority, with your very words. Father, as we, as we begin to to open and unpackage the Sermon on the Mount. May we hear clearly the words of, of your Messiah, our Rabbi, as he, as he begins to tell people your original intention for how it is to be understood. May we, may we be willing to be bold in our faith and begin to live that out in faithful obedience. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these people, for this community where we can come together and be of, of one mind and one purpose to praise you, to worship you, to study about you and to learn who you are and who you have created us to be. Father, thank you for this time. This is my prayer in your name. Amen.
this grand song. What heights of love, what depths of when years are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my holy Lord, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Yes, sir. 